Yeah, so good morning everyone, a special warm welcome to any of you who may be visiting this morning. Uh, my name is Paul and I have the privilege of leading the team that oversees New Life Community Church. As Joe has already shared, we are one church family that meets in multiple locations, both here in Thornbridge and in Wimborne, and we are very much on a mission together to see lives transformed by Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. I, so I think... Just on that note of Joe just mentioning One Church Sunday, we just don't want anything to be a stumbling block from you guys getting there. So if you uh, think it's going to be particularly difficult for you to get to QE School, um, please let the office know, please let Joe know, and we will try and help uh, manage a lift for you to get there. Also, I just want to say, as brothers and sisters, you guys know each other very well. Okay, So if you feel like you, you know someone who might struggle to get there, be, be the first to take initiative and say, can I give you a lift? You really need some help. Check in. Check in with one another. So we are continuing our series in the book of Hebrews, which is near the end of your Bibles. And just as a quick recap, which you've heard probably now many times, the writer here in this letter is seeking to help those with Christian faith, which at the time of writing, a great majority of those receiving this letter in particular would have been Jews who have converted to Christianity. And the writer's aim is to help followers of Jesus press into a greater maturity in their faith so that they may stand strong in great times of trial and testing. So, if you have your Bibles, we're going to turn to Hebrews chapter 7. Now, as you're, as you're flicking to find it, I just want to reiterate really this. Again, it's a very rich chapter. A lot of the chapters in Hebrews are rich. We're not going to hit all of the, note, all of the notes. But we're going to try and cover key ones that I feel God has placed on my heart. And so my encouragement to you is to read yes. this chapter 7 as part of your personal study. Dig deep. Because I'm sure what it should do, as it rightfully has done for me, is stir your appetite for worship. Stir your appetite for worship. And so we're going to start by reading just actually the first few verses together. And we're going to start in, even though I just said chapter 7, chapter 6, verses 19 to 20. And we'll read through to verses 1 to 3 of chapter 7. So from verse 19 in chapter 6, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father, or mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, who continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your word. I thank you that it is alive and active. 
We don't just trust it as a historical document, but one that speaks into us today and cuts right to the heart of the matter in our lives today. Thank you that it speaks into a future day as well. And so God, I pray that, Father, you would take us through the power of your word and you would bring us all on the journey of transformation this morning, that not one of us would leave this place unchanged. In Jesus' name, amen. Two households, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona, where we lay our scene. This is the opening line to William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. It is a tale of two people, a tale of two households, of Romeo and Juliet and of Montague and Capulet. It is also, of course, a tale of love. And here in chapter 7 of Hebrews, the writer wants to present to us a selection of pairs, a tale of twos. And so together we're going to explore this chapter 7 by looking at these particular twos. A tale of two people in Abraham and Melchizedek, and a tale of two houses in Levi and Judah. And of course, we'll aim to finish, as the writer intends, by looking at a tale of one Jesus. How God orchestrates history to preempt the arrival of his son. Now, Shakespeare sets the scene in Fair Verona. In our first act, the writer sets the scene in the Valley of Shaver, that is, the King's Valley. And it's here that we see a tale of two people. The Valley of Shaver, the King's Valley, lay east of Jerusalem and is the place where a significant meeting occurs. In what we have just read together, the writer is building upon a, an event recorded in Genesis 14. As these guys come to meet face to face, if you are familiar with the Bible, you would have probably have heard the name Abraham, pretty important figure in history. He was simply a man faithful to God. And God chooses to take this guy because of his faithfulness and richly bless him that he in turn might be a blessing. I'm going to read you a snippet of dialogue between God and his servant Abraham, which is found in Genesis 17. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abraham fell on his face and God said, said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abraham, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. For an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. 
and I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So, as much as Abraham is an important figure in history, and he is a significant figure in history, it would seem that in this scene, in the King's Valley, as they draw closer together, Abraham encounters someone of greater importance than him. As the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 7.7, it is beyond dispute that the inferior, namely Abraham, is blessed by the superior in Melchizedek. Now, to give you a bit of context, in this scene, Abraham has just returned from a rescue mission. A rescue mission for his nephew. So his nephew Lot had been taken as plunder, as spoils of war, including his family and all that he owned in a battle that had recently occurred of kings against kings. So Abraham goes out with over 300 of his trained guys, 300 against several kings and their armies. Vastly outnumbered, God goes before them in a mighty way and enables Abraham and his men to be victorious in battle in an event titled by the Hebrew writer as the slaughter of the kings. So just in case you had no idea what happened in that battle, (laughs) that was the outcome. Here in the valley, Melchizedek goes out to meet Abraham. Melchizedek himself is a king. It would seem that he has not taken part in the battle, but comes with special purpose to bless Abraham. And he can do this, not only because he is a king, but he is also a priest. As Genesis 14 says, a priest of God most high. And as king and as priest, he brings out bread and wine before Abraham and speaks this blessing over him. He says, Blessed be Abraham of God, by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And in this moment, by way of worship, Abraham responds to this blessing by giving Melchizedek 10% of everything he had, and Abraham was a pretty wealthy dude. Now, if you know something of God's covenant with Israel and the law given by God to them, you will understand the significance of tithing. So tithing is a, is a worship offering to God. And it was commanded of the people in order to recognise God as the primary provider for his people. And to show that he is first in your heart and therefore worthy of receiving the first of your everything else. And we use that principle of tithing today. We give to God the first fruits of what we have in time and finance and other resources as an offering of worship to show that he is first in our hearts and that we can completely depend upon him as provider. So when Abraham gives a tenth of everything to Melchizedek, he is pioneering an offering way before the law of God had been given to Israel. In this act, Abraham sets a standard of worshipful response to God who is blessed. So Melchizedek, he's a king, he's a priest, 
who meets Abraham with bread and wine. Now, if we only had that information and nothing else, it would probably ring a few bells of familiarity, would it not? I, by the way, I struggle with fami familiarity. That's a, bit of a, that's a bit of a trick word for me, found out. <coughs> so who else in scripture do we know who is both king and priest and administers bread and wine? Oh! <laughs> Bible. Let's do a Bible quiz. Okay, now let's remind ourselves then, okay, how the, how the Hebrew writer describes Melchizedek in verses 2 to 3, okay? He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. This guy, Melchizedek, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God who continues his priest forever. Now, in these two verses, the writer establishes an order of importance. That which comes first, followed by that which comes after. So here we have the identity of Melchizedek, followed by his title and his role. Like for many of us, God would affirm something of primary importance regarding our identity. Through Christ, we are first a son or daughter of God. Before anything else that you are, you are family. What follows is title and role. You might be a CEO or a banker or a nurse. You probably don't want to be a politician at this moment in time. You might be an apostle, an elder, a deacon. The role and title is informed by that which is more important though. These things, what you hold, what you function as, how you operate, they are informed by that which is more important, your identity who you are in Christ. And so on an application point, nice to hit a nice early application point, that's an important principle in life to remember. Your title and your role, they do not inform who you are, but your identity as son and daughter in Christ does. Amen? Amen. This shapes and fills the roles and responsibilities we have so we can reflect Jesus in what we do but remain content and level-headed level -headed in our occupations and roles. So we don't want to place an unhelpful value on those things because they are secondary things. They do not speak into who we are, but who we are affects the things that we do. So on reflection, I think that was probably one of the most outstanding aspects coming out of the Queen's funeral. This wonderful testimony that poured out, a testimony not really given focus to Elizabeth's role and function, but much more to who she was as a person, her character and nature as one who followed Jesus. Melchizedek is first king of righteousness, and I believe that is speaking more about who he is rather than what he does. He is royally righteous. Secondly, Melchizedek is king of Salem, that is king of peace. And we'll pick up the importance of that a bit later, but I believe this to be more in line with his function. He administers peace. He brings peace with his rule and reign. The way he builds, the way he commands, the way he directs, the way he brings justice, the way he relates. 
And his righteousness informs those things. Who he is affects what he does. Now what really separates Melchizedek from most kings and priests throughout all history is that absolute mic drop moment. The guy who meets face to face with Abraham is one without beginning of days or end of life. No dad, no mom, no siblings, no genealogy, no birth, no death. Melchizedek was and is and will be. And it's in this, it's in this the Hebrew writer says of Melchizedek, that he resembles the Son of God, one who is forever, one who has no beginning of days nor end of life, a king of righteousness, a king of peace, and priest of the Most High God. So that's Act 1, tale of two people, Abraham and Melchizedek, in the fair valley of kings. Let's move on to Act 2. A tale of two houses, Levi and Judah. <clears throat> there are 12 sons. They're born to a man from Jacob. This is where we get the 12 tribes of uh, what, houses, 12 houses of Israel. One of these houses is called Levi. And God especially sets apart males from this house of Levi to serve as priests for the nation of Israel. That priestly line begins with a guy called Aaron. And Aaron is the brother of Moses, which is uh, another familiar figure in the Bible. And the role of the priests was to intercede on behalf of the people to God Almighty. Through the covenant, and covenant means promises agreed between two parties, like the I do's on the wedding day. Through this covenant that God has with his people, a sacrificial system is given by God in order to help keep the people, the community, the nation, set apart God as holy. The priests would bring offerings, gift offerings, and animal sacrifices. Literally spill blood in accordance with God's law as offerings of worship for the forgiveness of sins for both themselves and the people. Note that in chapter 8 of verse 5 of the, of the book of Hebrews, the Hebrew writer says to the priests, they serve, these guys, the Levitical priesthood, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Which means this priesthood that comes out of the house of Levi was never meant to be permanent, but means of a temporary practice that was always pointing towards something better to come. One of the other houses is called Judah. And Judah had no share in that special assignment of priesthood, but nonetheless, God has certainly predetermined this house to have a very special role in history. These are the words of blessing that Jacob, the father of the twelve tribes, pronounces over the house of Israel. I'll read that to you. This is what Jacob, pretty much on his deathbed, he gathers in his sons, he gathers them around, and in his, in his final moments, he speaks God's blessing over each house, over each son. He says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand 
shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down and crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. In our tale of two people, what does Abraham see? What does he see when he encounters Melchizedek in that valley of kings? Let's first talk about the ground, the earth on which they're standing on. Firstly, this is Canaanite ground. When they meet in the valley of kings, this is Canaanite ground. This is the land promised by God to the future generations of Abraham. Secondly, this valley was just east of Jerusalem and land without Canaan that would eventually become known as the land of Judah. Thirdly, the person of Abraham encountered, the person Abraham encountered was king of Salem. And at this point, let me read Psalm 76, 1 to 3, where it says, In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. So we're going to connect some dots now. Okay, So Zion is another name for Jerusalem. This is the place where God intends to dwell among his people. Jerusalem is the main city of the land known as Judah, the place in which they are standing, the land. And in accordance with Jacob's blessing, Judah is the head of all other houses in Israel. It is the place of kings and the place to which tribute is given. It is also likely that Salem is an alternative name for Jerusalem, certainly in the days of Abraham. So when Abraham encounters Melchizedek, he encounters a king of Judah. And he sees, in that moment, way ahead to what God is doing. He's seeing ahead to the blessings that his grandson Jacob is going to make. He's seeing ahead to the reign of David, a king born out of Bethlehem in Judah. And in Melchizedek, he's seeing ahead to the day when one comes who is of the same stuff, born like David in Bethlehem in Judah. And yet one who is forever in days, who was and is, and will be a king of righteousness, a king of peace, and one who is the priest of God most high. What does he do? He brings tribute. He brings tribute. And so in fulfilment of a prophecy and blessing that yet has yet to be spoken or even recorded, Abraham sees ahead. He brings tribute to this king of Judah who is now and yet to come. You know, in Hebrews 11, this great chapter of faith, it says in 8 to 10 of Abraham, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place when he was, that he was to receive as an inheritance. That's the moment you're in. Abraham has already gone in faith in obedience to God 
And it says that he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, this Canaanite land, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same present promise. For he was looking forward, he was seeing ahead to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham had this wonderful gift of foresight, being able to look ahead to what God was doing. He might not have seen the whole picture, but he certainly saw enough to respond in great faith. A tale of two houses, Levi and Judah. One house that produced priests, one house that produced kings. One house that delivered something that was temporary and one house through whom God delivered something permanent. And we have a tale of two people in Abraham and of Melchizedek. One who could see ahead to what God was doing and one that embodied something that God had already done. And all of them, as the Hebrew writer wants to show, all of them were pointing towards something better. Which leads us nicely into one more tale. One more tale about a guy called Jesus. I would like us for a moment to consider the land that we are standing on now. Here, in this place, like you are Abraham, like you are coming face to face, and encountering one who would pronounce blessing as both king and priest over those who have been faithful. Whilst we've looked at a tale of two people and a tale of two houses, what the Hebrew writer wants to do is draw our ultimate attention to the tale of one Jesus. In him, we encounter a king of righteousness. Hebrews 7.26 says that Jesus is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. In him, we encounter a king of Judah. Hebrews 7.40 says, it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. We know, according to Jacob's blessing, that the scepter, the rule, the reign, the kingship shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's star from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And therefore we encounter in him a king that is forever. For like Melchizedek, he is one who is uncreated, having no beginning of days nor end of life. But unlike Melchizedek, there is a greater declaration over Jesus. For he is, according to the scriptures, the king of kings. And he is the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Amen? And not only is he forever in his kingship, but he is forever in his priesthood. For Hebrews 7.17 tells, For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And so therefore in him there is no longer the need for the Levitical priesthood. For that which was imperfect has been exchanged for that which is perfect. 
For in him we encounter a priest not qualified by biological descent, but as chapter 7.16, he shares, he qualifies by the power of an indestructible life. In him we encounter a priest who will not just intercede for a few generations, but one who will intercede for all generations, for all time. As Hebrews 7.25 says, he always lives to make intercession for them. And where God permitted one Levite priest per year to draw near to him because of the untouchable or unmatchable holiness of God in Christ Jesus, the King of Righteousness, we encounter a priest who is made a way for all to draw near to God. And therefore, like no other, as the Hebrew writer says, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. And where the Levite priests made many sacrifices on a daily basis for the sins of the people and of themselves, because of the perfection of Christ, he as priest, he as priest, offered himself once for all. And so this, as the Hebrew writer says in 7.22, makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. This, of course, is a tale about two covenants, and um, we'll be picking it up in a few weeks' time. Let me invite the worship team to come up, and should we stand together?
Can you look ahead to the throne and to the one who is seated on it? Can you look ahead to this King of Righteousness and King of Peace? Can you envision the myriads of angels, the countless in, in their number, bringing their offerings of worship? You see Abraham laying down his crown before the one who has no beginning and no end and is forever. Can you look ahead to the place that has been prepared for you? Can you see the land in which there is no more pain, no more suffering, and no more tears? of the Most High God who has dealt gently with you all the days of your life. Can you see your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? As we come to respond in worship, I believe for some of you here, God is going to give you fresh sight to see as Abraham saw. And this is to help you in the now. To press on in faith with the things that God has asked of you. Abraham was credited his, his faith his, was credited in righteousness because of his faith. He went without knowing. God asked of him and he went. He went forward without knowing. And I'll just, I'm going to call, I'm, we're going to get brave here and we're going to call forward. I'm going to ask anyone to call forward here. Anyone recognises their need for a fresh deposit of faith for the days to come. We're going to have a bunch of Abrahams here who are, going to, who are seeing ahead. Seeing the Jesus now and the Jesus who will be fully revealed. I believe God wants to impart to you a fresh deposit of faith for the days of head. And so like Abraham, we've got many Abrahams coming forward, almost going forward without knowing, but responding in faithful obedience. And as we do that in worship, I'm just going to get you guys just line up the front. I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to start praying for you. We're going to guys. We're going to start praying for you. We're going to pray for God to deposit fresh faith for the days ahead. And we're going to ask God to come and just do His work. So I'd also call forward anyone here who has, for the first time, you know, seen that Jesus is the real deal. A King of righteousness and a King of peace, who as the priest has outrageously and lovingly interceded for you and now for the first time you are seeing ahead 
to a life of following Him. And we as a church family, we're going to join with the myriads of angels now in worshipping the one who is most worthy of our praise. But in doing so, let your worship be accompanied by faith to step forward and respond. <coughs> so I particularly want to invite those uh, like Tim or elders or particularly those who might have a prophetic gifting to come join me in the front here and start praying for those who are going to respond in faith. That we may be praying for a fresh deposit of faith for the days ahead and that God would speak into their lives and empower and equip them for the days ahead. So Father, please have your way. Would you speak to us afresh now? Would you cause these Abrahams, I pray, not to be rooted in their chairs, but to go forward without knowledge? And if that's you, you want to be prayed for, my, my encouragement to you is to come forward now. Step forward now. And we're going to pray for a fresh deposit of faith for the days ahead. So God, I pray, Lord God, over your people and those people who are coming forward, whether this is uh, one of your fo- <laughs> one of, who has journeyed, a son or daughter who has journeyed with you for a long time, for those who don't even if yet to yield their life to Jesus. I pray now, Lord God, as we, as we come and pray for these guys, Lord, as they step forward in faith, God, you will do something fresh and new with them today and empower them for the days ahead. May they see like your servant Abraham, not just the now, but the days ahead. And let us faithfully come.